social media, especially in the moment for sports events, is really like the, the truest version of a sports bar that we have left because everybody jumps in, everybody's making comments. I mean, I was complaining about umpires in the Yankee game this past week. I'm a big Yankee fan, I was born in the Bronx. So even I take part in it. But I think for us, it's where can we provide value? And if we can, let's be there. And if not, it's okay to just uh, let it continue scrolling by. Well, it's been a while, Anna, since I've actually been to a sports bar, not because I don't like sports. I love sports, but uh, bars have been a little off limits for a while. But I think Eric's point about social media being the metaphorical digital sports bar is is right on. And as a big sports fan, I love it when we have sports-oriented guests on the show. Uh, and Eric is back for his uh, second appearance here on the podcast. Yeah, I didn't realize when the pandemic hit just how much sports dominates our lives and really has such a special place with everybody until it was gone. And his metaphor for the sports bar on social just blew my mind. I loved what he was talking about with that. It was a really interesting episode. I'm Jay Bear from Convince and Convert. She's Anna Harak, also from Convince and Convert. Our good friend Adam Brown is off this week. Uh, Eric used to be at the Houston Texans uh, National Football League franchise. He ran their social. Now he's at the Atlantic Coast Conference, uh, which oversees uh, sports for uh, 14, 15 different schools uh, in the eastern part of the United States. And it's a really interesting and unique kind of job. And he talks about it uh, here and also made even more interesting uh, and flexibility even more required because, of course, as you may have heard, uh, there is a pandemic, uh, which really impacts his his life and the games and everything. So uh, Eric's one of my favorite people in social. It was so cool to have him back uh, on the show. And I absolutely learned a lot. You will also learn a lot, my friends, uh, from this special report from our friends at Salesforce, longtime sponsor of the show. It's called the State of Marketing Report. This is the sixth edition of this report, and it presents the insights of nearly 7,000 marketing leaders across the globe. That is quite a universe of participation. The report highlights the strategic priorities, challenges, and technologies that transform this marketing profession that we have all chosen. Especially important to consider, given all the things that have changed. I want you to download it. It won't cost you a thing. Go to bit.ly slash new marketing report. That is B-I-T dot L-Y slash new marketing report. That's all lowercase. Grab that. Also want to acknowledge our sponsor this week, our good friends at LinkedIn. You know, let's pretend that you're going to launch a campaign and you did a little test and your team's happy with the test. Everything's looking good. And then you're like, well, wait a second. How do I make sure that the people that I really want to target are in the mindset to actually receive this message? Well, the answer in many cases is LinkedIn. Because when you use LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to do business. People are not going to LinkedIn to look at cat videos or like TikTok dance crazes, right? If they're on LinkedIn, they're there to do business. And that means your campaign will work as hard as it can as soon as you launch it. Over 62 million business decision makers are on LinkedIn thinking about business. And that's why 78% of B2B marketers like me rate LinkedIn as their most effective social platform in terms of helping their organization achieve specific objectives. We use it all the time here at Convince and Convert and for our clients, Big fan of our friends at LinkedIn. Lots of cool ad targeting things you can do there that you can't do anywhere else. You want to target ads by job title, company name, location, a lot of things that are almost impossible to do in other places you can do easily on LinkedIn. And check this out. Just for you, Social Pros listeners, a special offer. LinkedIn is going to give you $100 free dollars. $100 free dollars in LinkedIn ad credits. Just go to social 
pros, oh, other way around, linkedin.com. There you go. LinkedIn.com slash social pros. That's LinkedIn.com slash social pros. Do that. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's hear from our friend, Eric San Inocencio, the Associate Director of Digital Media for the Atlantic Coast Conference here on Social Pros. The man, the myth, the legend, Eric San Inocencio is back on Social Pros, his second appearance. As always happens, man, people come on the show and then they change jobs in like four, in like 45 minutes. I swear to God, we've done 450 episodes and I'll bet you 420 people have changed jobs. I feel like it's like top of your LinkedIn, been on Social Pros, please hire me. So you are now the Associate Commissioner for Strategic Digital Media at the Atlantic Coast conference. Welcome back, my friend. It's good to be here. And you're right. I do have that at the top of my LinkedIn. Anytime you can talk to Jay Bear, that needs to go immediately to the top. (laughs) Please tell my wife that. Uh, (laughs) We, I don't think we've ever on the show in a long history of the show had anybody from one of the uh, major collegiate conferences on the podcast. So super excited to talk to you, especially as a huge college sports fan uh, myself and, and our team, Anna and I's team at Convince to Convert, does a lot of work in higher ed. So always interested to, to hear some of those stories. Tell me about how your team is structured. So kind of how do you deploy your uh, your digital marketing peeps there? That's a good question. So I think most people assume that we are tied into the schools and work or they report to us, but that's not the case. We work centralized out of the conference office here in Greensboro, North Carolina. We have a marketing arm, a graphics arm, um, a production, a video production arm, and then our day-to-day digital team. So they're all separate departments right now. And I think that's something that we're trying to work on to build a little bit more synergy because they had operated independently before I got here. I think I'm the first of the Power Fives to have a role like this specifically for digital. And one of the biggest challenges I've had is to try to coalesce what we're doing from an organizational standpoint to make it somewhat similar to maybe what I did at the NFL or that you might see at the professional sports level where there's a, a centralized hub of how digital is kind of sent out, marketed, and monitored. And I think that's the steps that we're trying to take here. As you mentioned, the the league, the conference, um, has members. I'm just kind of kind of explain this for folks who aren't sports yeah, fans. You're not in the U.S. Um, so the league has uh, members. 14 is that what you have? 14 members. 14 total, and 15 when Notre Dame is in for everything but football. Even though this year they are a football playing members. So, so it's a little confusing. 14 to 15 members. Each member is a different uh, major university, uh, schools like Clemson in uh, South uh, Carolina, University of Miami, University of North Carolina, Duke. We had uh, Duke's uh, social media manager um, for the school on the show recently. Uh, And then each of those schools uh, has their athletic competitions organized by the conference, in your case, the Atlantic Coast Conference, which has been around for decades. Yeah. Yes, it's 1950s, so it's pretty centralized, but it's grown. Like you said, we go from the entire eastern seaboard, from Syracuse all the way down to Miami, so it's a pretty large swath of the country. Yeah, it sure is. And from your perspective, obviously the individual schools are responsible for hyping their own teams and selling their own tickets and getting their own sponsors, value, etc., what what is your role as the conference? Is it is it sort of hype man for everybody? Uh, and how how do you think about kind of from a digital standpoint? What is what is your responsibility in that regard? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I look at it two ways personally. I think it's for our events, our temple events, things that we sponsor and own. So just to add a little bit more detail to what you're mentioning, Jay, when Duke plays North Carolina in basketball. That's their game. It's an ACC-sanctioned game, obviously, but it's hosted on Carolina's campus or Duke's campus. 
So we're just in a support capacity there. They're actually running the event, so it's not ours. So we like to focus on what we call our tent poles, which is the ACC Men's Basketball Tournament, the ACC Football Championships, events that are hosted by us that also include experiential events like fanfares and things like that. So I think that's one big focus for us is how do we elevate those? How do we prospect for those? You know, provide, um, you know, digital memories, but also revenue opportunities. So I think that's one side. And secondarily, I almost view myself as a bit of an advisor for the rest of the league. You know, Jay, we've been in this business for a while. It's pretty funny. I saw Instagram this past week turn 10 years old. I was like, wow, it feels like just the other day. Facebook's a teenager at this point. You know, so things have completely evolved from where we started back in 08, 09 to what we're doing today. And I just try to share my experiences and help them because, as you mentioned, each school operates differently. Um, Duke may have a specific uh, men's basketball team that handles social within their larger athletic department. Some of these are marketing arms. Some of these reports to foundations. Some reports to communications. So there's no like stability in terms of I know exactly where they roll up. So I think for me, it's trying to provide guidance to each of them as they grow their departments, what their goals are, what their overall strategy is, and how do they communicate that. And just using what I see from league analytics and just my past history to kind of serve as a sounding board for them. So to me, those are the two roles that I think is what we're doing in our big events and then also how we can help the schools be better in this space. Do you do that in a in a routine capacity? Is there a a conference call or a Zoom call or a meeting or a workshop where you, you get um, athletics department or even individual sports, um, digital, social people from the institutions and kind of get together and talk out best practices? We do. So we meet every two weeks. We call it the digital director's call and we allow each school to designate who they want to be on that call. So we have things in college called service groups, that these are uh, large groups that do the same job that meet together, whether it's marketing directors, video directors, so we've added social and digital uh, to that group as well. And we meet bi-weekly. We've had some great guests that come in. I'm always big on not just it being me talking all the time. David Herman from Twitter, Nick Marquez from Facebook. We had the TikTok guys join us. So it's important for me to just get them connected to the right platform so they can get that key information because every strategy is different. What Miami values and thinks is important is probably going to be completely different from what Boston College is looking to do. So I think for us, it's just providing them the knowledge. And then I help them weekly uh, with analytics, uh, with top overperforming posts, things that they can see where they're having success, especially in relationship to their peers in the league and also in sports in general. So they can always have context. I'm trying to always remind them that social is no longer just creating content for your feeds. It's experiential living, right? 25% of the United States banks only digitally. You know, you look at Zoom calls, 300 million people did Zoom calls last year. It's a digital experience. It's a way of life. It's our Netflix feed. It's everything that we're doing every day that we may not realize has become a digital first experience and keeping them big picture to focus on what that means as we return to sports, as they build out their content strategies. And also, too, as they explain to their higher ups that maybe aren't as well versed in the space, what their value is. Do you look at what other conferences are doing, like the SEC and the Big 12 and the Pac-12? They, they have a similar role and responsibility, I presume, with how they're structured. Are you looking at, at what they're publishing on their social channels for inspiration? Are you antagonized by them? Uh, are, are you guys doing are you guys doing like, you know, is it is it like Wendy's versus McDonald's and, and you're like, you know, throwing shade at the SEC? Like, how does that work? Not quite. It's actually funny because before the Texans, I worked at the SEC. So all of these social channels that were created back then, you know, by me, 
are now what I'm competing against in some ways. So it's actually kind of funny. It's almost like a family member. So I think for me, we look at them definitely because we want to better understand, you know, ways that we can integrate our schools and our member institutions within the package. So I track all that. It's good for us to know what our interaction rate is compared against the Pac-12s or the Big Tens. What is the Big 12's content plan for championship events as opposed to ours? I just think it's good holistically to be aware of it. But I don't think uh, it's not as straightforward antagonizing as, say, it would be like a Wendy's, McDonald's situation, as you mentioned, because nobody is really a fan of the league first. They're a fan of the team that's in the league. So you might be a North Carolina fan, but necessarily not necessarily an ACC fan, but you may want to know about the other leagues in the ACC. We try to position ourselves as the second destination for fans. And that's the same thing with the SEC, right? Uh, you may be an Alabama fan, an Auburn fan, a Georgia fan. And then you may want to go to the league office to find out the schedules or the players of the week for the entire conference. So I think that's where the difference lies. When I was at the Texans, it was a little bit more combative because we were all about, you know, Houston and what we were doing and who we were playing that week. There was a natural antagonistic edge there. Whereas with the conferences, you're kind of a little bit removed from the day-to-day kind of mano a mano uh, battling that could happen on Twitter. But that doesn't mean that doesn't happen with our schools and schools as they play each other across leagues, if that helps in some context. So from consulting with schools and creating your own content, there are only so many hours in the day. So how do you actually have your team structured and how do you get all of this accomplished in a day uh, with your team? And what does that look like? I think that's a challenge that we're always ongoing. One thing that I've learned about being home the past six months is that for most people in the social space, this really isn't much different because we are always available in terms of when our phone games go on at night, we may be working, um, you know, right after we put our kids to bed. So this, this idea of being available all the time and being able to connect in that way is not foreign to us. I think it's been helpful to answer your question, Anna. So the way we try to structure it is I try to have people that are focused specifically on the day-to-day, whether it's our video production, graphics team, uh, the other digital lead that we have in our office, let her focus specifically on what the tasks that need to be done, whether it's players of the week, conference announcements, announcing our basketball schedule. She focuses on that and really getting into the details. And then there's a group of us, because in college you have a lot of third parties because things aren't centralized because these staffs are much smaller. So to give you an example, at the Texans, I think we had almost 200, 250 people the conference office at the ACC, we have 55. So you can't necessarily have all of the in-house material that you need to. So there's some agencies involved, some third parties. So I serve in a role with others in a leadership position, whether it's video production, our CFO, who's my boss. And we meet weekly to just discuss some high-level things, whether it's technology, what are we doing in that space? You know, How are we transitioning all of our in-person events that we've had in the past, like FanFest, to a virtual, virtual capacity for what that could look like in the fall? So I think what we try to do is layer it. You layer and you have your people that are involved every day. And that doesn't mean they can't come to me with a question or we're not involved in setting up that content schedule, but you let them kind of run with it. They report back with their metrics and how things are doing. Then you have this secondary group that's focused on higher level issues because you want to try to get ahead. And that's the challenge in college athletics is that you have these big events and you know when they're coming, but that doesn't mean there's a lot. Of, that does not mean there's not a lot of small events that you have to get through to get to that point. So I think that's the way we view it. And uh, there's definitely ways that we can improve. I think in a perfect world, we have a little bit more in terms of boots on the ground so that we could be quicker and react to things if, if certain uh, items happen or something pops up in the social space that we feel like we can comment on. We're getting better at that, but we're just not set up that way. It's more of a long-term view. And so we try to kind of structure. I know that was a long answer, but try to explain how we structure it day-to-day as opposed to kind of your more outgoing and view. 
So in terms of obviously before moving to remote work, a lot of this, a lot of these conversations were facilitated in person. There's obviously a lot of teamwork that goes into this. Um, I know you have several members on your team from, you know, video to content creators. How has this started to take shape within a remote environment and how do you still continue to have all of these great conversations and the teamwork and the collaboration and have, especially when news breaks so fast? I tell you what, Zoom and Microsoft Teams have been our best friend, like I assume with many companies over the past six months. But I think for us, what we try to do is, is stay connected as much as we can and just continue conversations. So Slack's been a big thing for us. We've got separate Slack channels for all our different sports. We'll drop notes in there. Hey, did you see this? And then within our meetings, we have a bunch of scheduled meetings like most do. We'll spend a lot of time looking at content that we liked across all platforms in sports and outside of sports that we can maybe apply to something that we're doing on an upcoming project that we have. But the challenge is, Anna, as you mentioned, with all these different departments, they all work in different ways. Like video production is a very hands-on thing where you stand behind them in an editing booth and give them notes as they're cutting something. That's not really possible now. I think what we try to do is provide as much communication up front so that we can state what our goals are, what we're hoping to attain, what the audience is for this, so we can kind of cut them loose. And then it's just changed the workflow because now the edits are made you know, digitally as opposed to sitting in one room and watching a piece together. So I think on the video side, it's been the most challenging just because of the way they operate. But I think for the rest of what we're doing from a graphic standpoint, from marketing, from a communications, we're pretty open in terms of how we contact already. So it's just been transitioning those in-person meetings to online and uh, kind of captivating it that way. One of the big trends in college athletics, Eric, is the new name, image, and likeness rules that have been um, unfurled or in the process of being unfurled so that, and, and please jump in here if I characterize it, so that uh, college athletes are allowed to, to do things like send out an Instagram on behalf of a car dealer or uh, what have you and, and, and essentially become... Uh, sponsors or influencers uh, right. receive compensation for that, which in the past would have been uh, prohibited by the NCAA, not by the conference, but by the national governing body. That's going to create uh, a, a, a a big change in, in how uh, recruiting works and in, in how students handle their own social media. We've had uh, the guys from Open Doors, which is one of the companies that are sort of managing that uh, program on the podcast uh, in the past, actually like probably a year and a half ago, and it's just being discussed. Looking at that, now you have to deal with all the schools and how they're handling social. What happens when now you've got to deal with Trevor Lawrence at Clemson and sort of interface with his own personal brand and his agent? Uh, and it just feels like it's going to get real complicated real fast. No, I agree. And I think that's why we're trying to finalize exactly what the legislation is going to be for this. So you mentioned the NCAA as a centralized governing body. They're going through the process now of trying to finalize, you know, what are the rules and, and regulations and how do we monitor this? I think one thing people have to remember is they look at the NCAA as a singular body, but it's really made up of all these different schools that operate on much different, um, you know, budgets, planes, uh, the amount of followers that they have, stuff like that. Um, you know, what's going on at Clemson is different than what's going on at the University of Montevallo, where I went to school, or what's happening in Bloomington, where you live, Jay, is completely different than what's happening, you know, at Grand Canyon, maybe out there where you live. And uh, so I think trying to get all of those people on the same page is a challenge. As we go through what the legislation looks like, I'm excited to see because I know and I think all of us know on this call, digital will be the place where most brands want to interact with these student athletes and the ability to provide guidance to them and uh, you know, explain best practices, things like that. I hope we take on a greater role. 
I, I don't want to appear as if I'm dodging the question, but I just don't know what the specificity is of what the rules will entail. But once they do, I've already been in contact with our group about how digital can be a big help. And to me, I look at it as, a, as an exciting type of thing for people to be able to use their platforms. And again, the digital side of it is going to be the main part of where this takes place. I think about when I was at the Texans and you know, those guys are endorsing all these different products and we get the opportunity to help shape a campaign for them or for working with a partner. So I have a ton of experience in this area. It's just exactly what can we unleash and what does the NCAA determine is the best way to go about it. I think once that door opens for people like me and others, you know, with my background in college athletics, they're going to be excited because it's a chance to really help. So I'm, I really want to see what the specifics are of it. And I know it's going to take some time and I think it's taking a bit of a backseat, not because it's not important, but because of what COVID's happening and how it's reshaped everything within college athletics and just getting on the field. But I think once you see some of this legislation go through, it's going to be a great opportunity. And I know for me as a person in digital space, I really want to dive in and see where I can help. Speaking of things that are uncertain, obviously there's a pandemic. You may have heard about it. You know, when you were last on the show and you were working for the Houston Texans NFL club, it was pre-pandemic. And it was like, yeah, we play every Sunday. Sometimes we play on Monday, occasionally on Thursday. But pretty much we play every Sunday uh, at either 1 o'clock or 4 o'clock. And, um, you know, that's kind of the deal. Uh, uh, And, yeah. Um, there you go. Now you've got these basketball championships, which were canceled uh, this year in 2020. You presumably have a football championship. Uh, I think December 19th, I think is your tentative date. 12th or 19th. So I mean, well, that's yeah. Yeah. true that too. Yeah, exactly. My point. Right. So by the time this episode uh, drops, it'll be probably early uh, November. So with, it'll be like 30, 35 days out. I'm like, well, I don't know what day is the championship game. Like it's so unthinkable, right? You, you sort of wind the clock back to 2019 BC before COVID and to be like, yeah, we're like, we're like a month away from the college championship game for the ACC. We're not sure what date it's going to be, though. Like, that would have been laughable. It would have been inconceivable. Uh, it is absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, you know, schedule, college, college athletic schedules uh, for social pros listeners who aren't super into it, like why I am. Football in particular are 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 so far in advance it is it is laughable. Like there are games scheduled in 2033, 2034, especially for power schools like Clemson and Notre Dame. I mean, literally, it's like, look, that feels optimistic, right? At this point, an asteroid is probably gonna wipe us out by 2034. But if you want to schedule a football game for then, you know, Godspeed. Uh, so uh, this has to be really strange for you. Obviously, the pandemic strange for everybody. But you were in a business with a cadence and a level of certainty based on the kind of industry. You're still in the same industry, but now have very little certainty and all kinds of cra- – who knows if we're going to have a basketball tournament next spring. How do you guys contend with that? Like, not only you for your team, but but what do your bosses and leaders say? Just like, hey, guys, do the best you can? Well, I think what's really hit home for me is how much sports dictates – our yearly schedule, like just from a personal perspective. I know when it's March, you know, it's March Madness, it's tournaments, it's brackets, it's all that fun stuff. You know, when September rolls around, it's the start of college and NFL. So I think that's completely been upended. And so for us, the way we kind of tackle it, and again, Commissioner Swaffer's done a great job, you know, in terms of following where the science tells you to go and then making adjustments and being able to build in some buffer zones. So for football, for example, We've had to reschedule a lot of games, but I think that's why we built the two-week buffer in at the beginning and then the week or two on the back end because flexibility is the number one name of the game, right? We have no idea. All you can do is make the best decision you can with the information that you have today. 
And so I think for us, we've kind of been given this idea of we are going to play until we say we're not going to play. My boss um, always references, he goes, we never canceled football. Football was always at the same time, at the same schedule, but we were adaptable and ready to change if we need to. So we're always going in, assuming that we're going to execute as if things were the same. And then if adjustments are made, at least your plans are already set and you're not readjusting the entire plan. You're readjusting parts of it, whether it's the amount of people that are in the stadium or the fact that you may not have a fan fest or, you know, how schools test and how you're getting that information back to them. The plan is still the same. It's just junctures within the plan that may need to change as more information comes up. And again, I can't tell you how challenging this is in college athletics because A, there's not a centralized, there's a centralized governing body, but not the same as it is in the NFL, right? The NFL has the league office. They're telling everybody to do the same thing. And they're still dealing with the same issues uh, that we are, Jay, this week. And, you know, like you said, when this airs, this might be old news, but the Tennessee Titans are going through a bit of an outbreak and what's happening with them and they're having to reschedule games. So this is happening everywhere and every state is different. It's been fascinating to see this pandemic through the eyes of my wife, who's Canadian. Uh, in Canada, they have a much more centralized plan to how they're going to attack this or the way that the provinces are going about in terms of policies and getting everybody lined up. Here, every state is different. So we were mentioning you know, before we got on to record what's happening in Florida and the amount of people that can go to a game by their government is night and day from what it is for Syracuse and New York. So just navigating all that. But I think in the end, to bring that all back, the plan is always to proceed as if things are happening and be adaptable to make changes within that plan if you need to. It's not scrapping it every time because then you get to the point where you're putting yeah. contingencies on contingencies and you never get anywhere. So we're just moving forward as if we're going to have a basketball tournament in Washington, Washington D.C. in March of 2021. Will that happen? Who knows? But we're moving forward as we are. So we're continuing the same steps of the planning process that we would um, if we knew 100% that it was happening and then making adjustments. And we found that it's the best way, at least within our office, to keep things moving. It's not perfect. You're going to make mistakes. Uh, you're going to be unaware of things. You're going to be caught off guard and by surprise. And you're going to have to, to change. But that's been kind of our mantra, at least as I've seen it. Yeah, you, may, you raise an interesting uh, point, Eric. Uh, Eric San Inocencio from the Atlantic Coast Conference is our guest this week on Social Pros. Uh, Eric, you raise an interesting point that you know, you've got 14 slash 15 schools in the conference across, I'm not sure how many actual states that is, but nine, a ten. Lot. Yeah. A lot. And, and, and as we know, uh, in the United States, guidance around uh, COVID and crowd density, things like that are set at the state level, not the federal level. And when you talk about, say, the football conference championship game, which matches the best team um, from the Coastal Conference and the best team from the or the Coastal Division and the other one, what's Atlantic? Whatever. Atlantic, yeah. Atlantic, um, Atlantic Division uh, in, in mid-December at some point, theoretically. The crowd at that game is dictated by the government in that state. Is it Atlanta? Is that where the game it's is? It's in Charlotte. So Charlotte. we're completely at the mercy and yeah, that it doesn't matter. You're going to sell as many tickets as Charlotte says you can sell. Or, or in North Carolina. Well, the Panthers Stadium, it's Bank of America. Mm -hmm. So fortunately for us, we have a little bit of a roadmap that we can follow. I think this past week, I think this past week they had 5,600 or 65, somewhere around that range at the game with proper social spacing and everything that was mandated by the governor of North Carolina. Will that change in a month? Probably. Could be less, could be more. Could that change the first week of December? When sure. our tournament is the next, our championship game is the next week, of course. So again, the contingencies 
um, may change, but the plan itself, we've got to move forward as if we're going to have 60,000 in the stadium. Are we going to have 60,000? Probably not. Almost definitely not. But you start from there and then you make the adjustments. But yeah, like it's governed within the state that it's in. And so even within our conference, we've got different schools with different abilities. So again, we're just providing framework and then they have to individualize it for the location where they are. But you're going to be there, 6,500 people. Eric's going to be there. I'll be there. Um, I don't know whether I'll be on the field. You know, even the way we cover things, we had a yeah. meeting this morning uh, just asking about what staffing you would want if we have a football championship, not if, when we have a football championship game, what that looks like. And we were just talking as a social team, you know, are we going to be able to be on the field? Because most of our work pregame is done there. Are we going to have to shoot from the stands with our video? Right. These are questions that we don't know. Yeah, I mean, in the National Football League, where you used to be, the sideline reporters are not on the sideline. They're in the stands now. Exactly. So, totally different totally different job. But I think, you know, when you work on that staffing plan, uh, my suggestion, um, not for nothing, is that it should include uh, Jay Bear and Anna Harak of Convincing Convert. So, you know, you do with that what you will. I know you're going to have a game one way or the other, but, you know, we'll be happy to go out down there and shoot some TikToks or whatever. That's what I was going to say. I was going to put you lead of TikTok strategy and just eat it up for us. And then Anna, we could put you just to, to roam around and, and just everything top level and make sure that we're doing She'll it. do it on skates. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Whole new world. You can roll it around the field during yeah. the game. I'll bust my roller derby game. Speaking of tournaments, I know Anna wants to talk about uh, the tournament uh, cancellation uh, this year. Yeah. So obviously speaking of uncertainty and cancellations and a weird year, you were able to take a really unfortunate cancellation with the 2020 ACC men's basketball tournament and pivot and actually bring something really amazing to life with it, which was the tournament that wasn't series. And, and, you know, going back to creating that digital experience, I'd love for you to just talk about that campaign and how it came to be and really being able to pivot and turn a really unfortunate situation into something very positive. It's very kind of you to say and that was the first time in history that the ACC basketball tournament was not finished or was canceled. So I remember sitting there, you know, this all happens within the span of like 24 hours. You know, we had a Tuesday night session where North Carolina was playing and there was a lot of people in the stands and we're, you know, Wednesday comes and then Rudy Gobert tests positive. I almost feel bad for Rudy Gobert because any sports fan will now remember him first for being the person to test positive as opposed to the great career he's had. I mean, he's defensive player of the year, all defensive uh, team player, but he'll always be remembered as the guy who tested positive and then the NBA canceled. And I remember like two hours later, Tom Hanks uh, sending out the, the social post about him being tested positive. Like, bro, if Tom Hanks has it, anybody can get it, right? Wow, you know, and it was just, we're all sitting there and I just had this moment where I was looking around. I think we had 20,000 people, North Carolina and Syracuse were playing that night. And I'm just looking around and like, oh my God, the world's going to change. And 24 hours later, we didn't have a tournament. We want to talk about contingencies. We spent that entire Wednesday night, as outlined in the documentary, as you said, figuring out what the rest of the tournament was going to look like without fans and how we're going to operate in that capacity. The next day, we were like, we're going to go, we're going to go, and then everything got canceled by noon. So it was a strange turn of events. And, you know, ironically, that's the last time that I went to the office consistently. You know, that was March 11th. And, you know, we're taping this today, October 9th. Um, so that's almost, you know, you could do the math there, how many months, seven months have passed. It, in that date. But I think for us, it was such a unique story and it was ours to tell of how we made the decision. One thing I've been trying to push in conjunction with our leadership team is to be more transparent about what we do, because I think there's value in fans understanding. I always have a saying that if, if you don't give the people the information and there's a black hole there, they're going to fill it with whatever they want. 
So you might as well be the, the people up front and saying exactly why you made this decision. So we were set up actually to shoot that tournament more so for a digital perspective. All the cameras, I think we had like seven or eight cameramen uh, shooting everything, shooting people in the stands, working on different digital pieces that we were going to do. So unknowingly, we didn't know. We had a documentary crew there. I mean, they weren't supposed to shoot a documentary, but we had all this footage. And obviously when he gave, uh, Commissioner Swafford gave the championship out to Florida State there in an empty gym, how surreal that was. We had all that. And so Scott McBurney, the lead of our advanced media production arm, started kind of toying with the notion of, you know, how do we tell this story? And at that time, we just attacked it like we would anything else in that time period. We did Zooms, Anna. Like we did Zooms with a, quite a few of the coaches. You know, you got Roy Williams on a Zoom call. You know, you've got uh, Syracuse players and Clemson players on Zoom calls at their house because at that time we were shooting it. And we wanted to tell it. And I think it was so interesting because really the idea of COVID affecting our tournament started during the women's portion of the tournament, which was on Sunday. We're already having those discussions. And then how it built up to Wednesday, how they decided to cancel, what the reactions were of the coaches when commissioner told them that it was being canceled, how he felt personally. You know, he's been in this league since 1981, I believe. And so it's a really big deal for him, this tournament. And just the emotions, the raw emotions behind that. And then just getting some great commentary from the media members that were there. Because we all felt like we were part of something that would only happen once during our lifetimes. And it just felt so surreal. Like there's a, a 15 second part of the documentary where everybody says surreal over and over again, because that's what it felt. Whether it's Jay Billis or David Teal, who works out, out of Raleigh, like all these people to get perspective of. So we turned it into a story that we could tell. It ended up being about a 22 minute series. We did it in five parts over on Twitter and, and did it as a premiere on Facebook. It did really great numbers for us. And, and again, it was just a, an opportunity for us to peel the curtain back on what it's like to make those decisions. And we were the first to kind of do it. And we turned it around pretty quickly. So I'm really, really proud of that. Thank you for bringing that up. I want to ask you about uh, paid social and and whether that's part of the plan to promote the championships, ticket sales, exposure, enthusiasm, et cetera, or is that TBD based on how many tickets there are to sell and kind of what actually happens when we get closer? Yeah, right now it's TBD because um, for those of you unfamiliar with college, there's allotments that the schools get when they advance to the football championship games. There's a certain amount of tickets that are allotted for them. So if our number, and I'm just throwing numbers out here, if we have 12,000 people that can come to the game, you know, five or six of that allotment on each side is going to go to the school. So we may not need to sell any more tickets outside of that. But if the number grows, definitely we use paid social. We use it a lot last year to really focus on the Charlotte area and surrounding areas. And it was really helpful for us. It was the first year that we looked at it that way. And I'm not trying to take credit. It's it just more so me being in the building and having the awareness to want to use it. So it's a pretty big deal for us. It's also a way for us to tie in who these fans are on our other platforms. So we've got email newsletters, like most people do. You know, we communicate a couple times a week uh, to specific fan bases based on what's happening with their teams. How do we find those people in the social space and connect them so that we individualize the process? I think if you were to ask me a couple of years ago, Jay, when I was with the Texans, we were so focused on volume. You know, we're a smaller franchise than they were. How do we reach more people? I think now at the ACC, I've almost turned it the other way. How do I, instead of trying to reach as many people, how do I personalize the journey to every single person that interacts with us so it feels as if it's a one-to-one -one relationship? I think that's where my mindset has changed completely differently working at a league. And I think the tools that are out there, including paid social, allow you to do that. So I think we've kind of transformed. I'll give you a good example. We used to have, we probably won't have it this year, a 5K, a mascot run that we'd have the day of the football championship game. 
in the past, they had been reaching out to you know runners groups and stuff like that to try to get participation in. And their budget was double what we ended up spending on digital to get the same results and more so. We got more people to come because we were connected and we got connected with all these groups. And then we're able to bring those people into our fold, get their email in our database, find out what team they support, uh, send them merchandise opportunities, sweepstakes, and just connect with them personally on stuff that they want as opposed to a generalized ACC message. So I think I've kind of flipped on how we use paid social as a way to personalize it a little bit more. Sorry, long answer. When, when you say mascot run, does that mean that the actual team mascots in the giant animal heads run 5K? They run a 1K with the kids. That's a tough ass to get a mascot to run. I was going to say, yeah, you know, even 1K though, what's that? Two thirds of a mile, something like that in general uh, measure. I mean, you know, those, uh, I have worn a mascot suit uh, on more than one occasion. That probably surprises nobody. Uh, and uh, it, is, uh, it is a stuffy, yucky business right there. So any sort of, uh, even a trot, I wouldn't want to do uh, very long in a mascot head costume so good for them it's a good experience for the kids and shout out to louis the louisville cardinals mascot he always puts in a tremendous performance he's usually in the top four or five he's quite the athlete but it's fun to see and i think the kids get out there and enjoy it i know my son my son and daughter both ran the 1k this past year humble brag my son won the 1k nice but, uh, it, it's just fun to get them out there you mentioned uh, the Texans. I would be remiss if I did not uh, address the uh, the elephant in the room, which is uh, the Texans, who were a, a, a successful a team during your tenure, probably because of the adeptness of the social media program. Uh, they uh, four division titles in six years now have fallen on hard times. Not coincidentally, since Eric uh, left their employ, uh, they at the time of this taping are zero and four for the year and recently fired their general manager and coach Bill O'Brien, who Eric uh, worked with quite closely. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like you were the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back for the Texans? Or, uh, you know, obviously you're still a fan because you spent good years there. It's got it's to be weird. It is weird because I think in sports you get so focused on what you're doing. Like I probably watch a lot less NFL than I did three or four years ago just because Saturday has become the day now where I'm tracking what all of our sports are doing. Um, it's unfortunate. Like I've got a lot of great friends there and the NFL business is really hard when you're not winning, especially on the social front, the game presentation side, you know, when you're not having success on the field, you know, fan, fan engagement obviously drops. I and mean, we've talked about this before in college. The one benefit that you have is even when your team loses, there's still a personal connection to the school that supersedes that one game. And I think in pro sports, there is that. Look at Wake Forest in your conference, right? I mean, exactly. They're proud. They've almost never been good at football, uh, and people still come to the games and are pumped. Right, and they're proud to be associated with the school. It runs deeper than the results. Where in professional sports, again, I think the Cowboys, Packers, some of the more traditional franchises have some of that. But for the newer franchise, a lot of it depends on whether you're successful on the field or not. And so I can't imagine how difficult it is you know, to go through that and, and have, you know, not only not winning, but, you know, having your fans perhaps wanting to have the change made at the higher level. So almost rooting against your team to win. I think JJ Watt uh, shared a good quote this past week where he was like, I just want all of us players and fans to get on the same page. He felt that there was a disconnect that fans in some ways were rooting for the team to lose so that they can have, uh, you know, new, structure at the top of the organization to change things around. So you never want that to happen where your fans are openly hoping that you don't succeed. 
So hopefully for them, they can find the right GM, the right coach, and um, move forward. They've got a lot of great pieces there. You know, Deshaun Watson, and I'm not just saying this now because I work at the ACC, he is a tremendous person. You know, people forget his first game check ever he gave to uh, a few ladies that worked in our cafeteria that had lost their homes from Hurricane Harvey. He gave them the, his game check, his first one. So he's a tremendous person with a great heart. Um, he's a he's a model person to be the face of your franchise. So there's a lot of good pieces there, and you hope that they some at some point can succeed because Houston's hungry. Houston loves football. Houston loves the Texans, and they support the Texans, even though the Texans maybe haven't had as much success on the field as has justified that support. But they, they've got all the pieces, and you just hope that they put it together um, because, you know, what they do from a game presentation standpoint and, you know, the event that they put on, it's, it's a really fun thing to go to. I mean, having been to a ton of them, you know, my family, all that kind of stuff. So I, I hope they turn it around quickly. And in the NFL, you can do that if you've got some key pieces and they've got one in the quarterback for sure. So just out of curiosity, because obviously any time the topics of sports come up or any time any teams come up and fans get involved, conversations can get really heated really quickly. And, you know, it can either be in jest or sometimes it gets really, really serious and, and kind of uh, over the top. So how do you and your team kind of deal with some of that negativity, some of the discourse? You know, how do you determine between friendly banter and maybe when to escalate some issues? It... Um, uh, it can get pretty intense, I imagine, on, on some of your feeds. For sure. And for us, it's never like, oh, my team didn't win. It's your fault. It's, it's you know, your league set this up because you're against us. Or, you know, your referees are terrible or this, that, and the other. So I think the way we think about it is whenever we can provide um, context to a conversation, we'll do, we'll do that. But for the most part, if it doesn't fall within that bucket, that's something that we'll pass on. And I think the reason we do it that way is because we've set up ahead of time what our tone of voice is for each platform so that we can have a better understanding, not just for us and the people working on it, but for our bosses, so that if we do take the chance to escalate a situation or jump in with some funny banter, as you mentioned, Anna, the expectation has already been set, and I've communicated this to you as to what we want to do. But for us, is can we provide value to the conversation? If it's somebody just upset um, and venting and, and, you know, just feels like they want to spew some vitriol. That's great. No problem. But that's not somewhere we will respond. But if we can provide something to the conversation, whether specifically to a rule or, you know, what are the tiebreakers for a certain uh, sport or, you know, why was this game changed or anywhere that we can provide extra context, I think we're happy to be a part of that conversation. That's kind of how we view it. But you're right. Um, social media, especially in the moment for sports events is really like the, the truest version of a sports bar that we have left because everybody jumps in, everybody's making comments. I mean, I was complaining about umpires in the Yankee game this past week. I'm a big Yankee fan. I was born in the Bronx. So even I take part in it. But I think for us, it's where can we provide value? And if we can, let's be there. And if not, it's okay to just uh, let it continue scrolling by. You can go ahead and tweet your conspiracy theories to Eric directly. Uh, you can find his uh, Twitter handle at social. Um, uh, Eric, we're going to close it out with the two questions. We ask everybody here on the show, including you previously, uh, when you appeared on this very podcast, what one tip would you give somebody who's looking to become a social pro? Be patient. I think for me, and I'm probably talking more about myself. Social is still young in terms of it's part of an organization. You know, we talked about it before Facebook being a teenager. That's only 13 years. I always say, like, you can watch Mad Men and see what marketing was, and that was 50, 60 years ago. So be patient. 
uh, understand that it's a process and be able to communicate what your value is in a way that your boss can understand. I think one thing we really struggle with in the digital front is we talk in metrics that are important to us, but your boss may not understand what that means. If your boss is a CFO or if he's a revenue generation position, then you need to explain your value in dollars and cents and revenue so that he can see how important you are. Um, so that's the one thing. Find what is important to your boss and communicate your value in those metrics that they understand and just be patient. And again, I'm probably talking more to myself than anybody else. That's such a good answer, though. You know, the, we, we get so wrapped up in social and realize that, you know, for, for people in the C-suite, they have so many other things on their plate and social is well down the list in many organizations. And they just don't they don't know, you know, if we're talking about engagement rates, like, what is that? And I can't pay a mortgage with an engagement rate. So what is that exactly? Why do I care? Such good advice, Eric. I really appreciate that perspective. Lastly, if you could do a video call with any living person, uh, who would it be and why? Last time you asked me this, I went with Malcolm Gladwell. And he's still always on my list just because he always makes me think. But I'll go more sports specific this time. I'd love to talk to Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner. Ooh, good one. And the reason I would is because what they did from a bubble perspective in Disney while also integrating social justice, while also making sure the players felt safe and that their families could attend and getting all that to go off without a hitch, I think is one of the more impressive things I've seen in sports. And so I'd love to just pick his brain on how he manages the relationship that he has with the players, along with the best interests of the owners and pushing the league together as a whole and elevating their brand. I think it's a hard job. I mean, being close to a commissioner now you understand how challenging it can be to manage all those different personalities and how, you know, to get them all moving forward. And I think what the NBA did with their bubble at the Disney complex was pretty fascinating in terms of a social experiment, but also with the success that they had in pulling it off. So if I could just pick his brain on how he made sure to get everybody on the same page from the players association to the owners, you know, to the Disney staffers that came in and worked, to the transportation people that got uh, folks on and off that campus, I can't imagine how challenging that must have been. So just to better understand how he went about tackling that to me would be fascinating. Yeah, an awful lot of logistics. And if you would have told me at the beginning of that, that they would cancel more games because of social justice than they would have canceled because of COVID, I would have said, there's n- what? <laughs> like, how is that even possible, right? So, uh, yeah, very, very impressive logistical and organizational feat. No question. Uh, Adam Silver, commissioner of the NBA, would be a great person to talk to. We should get him on the show make that happen. We can do that. Eric, uh, thanks again for taking the time to be back on Social Pros. Anna and I really appreciate it. We'll do this again after you go somewhere else. Where are you going to go next? I have no idea, but I mean, if the timeline's right, it means that people Yankees. should be calling me now. New York Yankees. That's oh, it. Man. Get a little, little tingle when you say that. A little, uh, yeah, hey, they're listening, I'm sure. Thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it. Terrific, uh, terrific job at the ACC. Uh, we are uh, rooting for your success uh, here in December for football and obviously in March uh, for the basketball championship. Jay, can I say one more thing before we let go? Please. This podcast, for anyone that follows social media, and I'm preaching to the converted here, obviously, convince and convert, it's fantastic. I listen to it every week. I learn something different about how people approach social because, as we mentioned, what social means to different organizations can completely change based on the business you're in. So I, I can't emphasize enough how great this podcast podcast is. And I know Adam was too cool to come on today, um, but it's it's really great. I've enjoyed it, and it's a thing that you don't have to listen to it 
you know, in order, like I'll pop in and I'll be doing for a run and I'll hit three or four of them in a row and I'll come back and write a bunch of stuff down in my notebook. So kudos to you, Adam and now Anna and, and the group together, what you guys have done. I've really enjoyed it. Eric, thanks very much for those kind words. That was very nice of you. An unsolicited testimonial, uh, Social Pros listeners. We didn't even set that up before the show. Uh, it just worked out that way. Very kind of you, Eric. Thank you so much. Uh, as Eric mentioned, we've been doing this a long time now, almost 450 episodes, all the way back to January of 2000. And 12, if memory serves, if you go to socialpros.com, you can access each and every episode, including transcripts, links, special bonuses. And of course, you can listen to the entire back catalog everywhere you get your delicious audio programming. And as Eric mentioned, we very much purposely do record the show this way so uh, that you don't have to listen to it in order. You can kind of skip around and say, oh, I'm interested in that brand or that business, uh, and it will still be valuable. On behalf of the one, the only, the incredible Anna Harak, I am Jay Bear. Both of us are from Convince and convert the show is brought to you by our friends at salesforce and our good pals at linkedin adam will be back next week with more on what we hope is your favorite podcast in the whole wide world this has been social pros social pros